right, let's jump right in. Question number one. What are your favorite streamer retrieves? Long, slow pulls, or maybe short, quick twitched? That... <laughs> Uh, it's funny. I didn't know that's the first question you're going to ask. Just for the audience, um, I have no knowledge of the questions that Aaron is going to ask. I am not looking at his computer screen, so I have no knowledge. So right. the uh, the streamer style, I would say I do not have any favorite style, and I would urge people not to have a favorite style as if you get too locked into one type of streamer retrieve you are greatly reducing your chances of catching fish because it's very rare that one stripping tactic is going to be super successful all day long True. there are days that like that but they're far and few between so rather than having one i would say diversify your streamer stripping portfolio and experiment with a bunch stripping downstream stripping upstream dead drifting like two hand stripping just ripping it across the top um that is what i would tell everyone that's my take on it do you ever do like a jig strip where you like lift your rod tip up fast and then pull in i lift it up fast pull in i definitely i don't do much of the jigging um if you have like a jig style streamer or like yeah. something that's weighted, like, yeah, like a heavy, bugger that's or what I do with like heavy know. weighted stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then yeah, it's easier to do that. You know where you can kind of adjust the height, not just the you know horizontal action, but also the vertical action. Yep. Um, I definitely am careful when I do it though, especially if I know there's a lot of fish in the area because that upward like snagging, you can easily like snag into one. It's true. And so I, I don't do it all the time. I, I actually do that rarely because I, I don't use a lot of heavy, heavy streamers. You know, I'd like to use more sex dungeons and stuff like that that are heavier, that get that up and down action. It's really easy to do that with them. Um, so that's something I've... I mean, to, to answer in short, I mean, I just, I change it up all the time. I try all kinds of different stuff. Um I think the traditional one, like you're saying, just getting locked in on one thing is like the strip, strip set. Yeah. Right? Like you kind of strip from your rod back to your pocket or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think sometimes you get locked into just one thing, like you're saying, and then you're like, man, is there other things I could be doing? So, I mean, a great thing is to hit one area and do multiple different retrieves back. For you sure. Know, try different I do, stuff. a lot of the times, the first thing that I do is a micro strip. I'll strip yep. like one inch in at a time. Yep. Strip strip like little little micro strips yep. just because that keeps my streamer in the water for like a long period of time those work well that worked well for us uh, was it last winter mm -hmm. yes we were winter fishing yes, we were winter fishing. it was like it was like a one inch one inch like two quick little one inch yep. strips and then let it sit for a second yep um i mean sometimes just letting it hang out in the current yep. <laughs> not even retrieving yep. works absolutely as boring as that sounds but um caught some fish that way yeah for sure um yeah, all good. Tell them your quick little, was it November or December story when you are just ripping the oh, streamer? <laughs> December. It was December. <laughs> and I was like fooling around, just joking, you know, kind of getting bored. I wasn't catching any fish. Just testing out a new fly. Yeah, just, I, yeah I was testing out a new streamer, um, a new style of streamer. And I was just 
absolutely ripping it across the top. And this is in trout waters. This is in trout waters. Yep. Just to see how it would react. Like, I was just testing out a new fly like I do. And out of nowhere, Brookie comes up and just smashes it. Yep. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's descent. I mean, the water was like 35 Yeah, degrees. you're used to doing slow stuff in the wintertime. Right. A lot of dead drifting. Whatever. So I do that once. I get smashed. So I'm like, you know, I don't know. I'll do it again. I do it again. Smashed again. I do it again. Smashed again. I caught like <laughs> six trout. <laughs> I caught like six brook trout in like 20 minutes. Just ripping it as fast, like literally as fast as I possibly could yep. across the top. Was it yeah. sunny out? Not really. It no. was kind of a cold day. It was yep. like 36 degrees out. Yep. The water was like, you know, mid to high 30s, maybe, you know, 40 at most. So I don't know. That that just feeds into you should try a bunch of different methods because you're just not sure. You just never know. You just never know. Yeah, yeah I, I, agree. I agree with that answer. Um, which leads us to our next actual two questions. Um, we put these two questions together because they're very similar. So the first question is, uh, tell me about the winter fly fishing scene in Maine. Um, and then the next question that goes with that really is what are the best places to look for that January and February fish on the fly? So winter fishing in Maine is rough and slow. And if you like to be comfortable, it's definitely not for you. So that's the winter fishing scene in Maine summed up. And it's not a lot open. No. Especially in the, like in the North country. Right. North country is basically completely locked up and... You know, you're battling a lot of snow usually, a lot of ice, a lot of ice buildup. Um, this winter has been pretty mild, so there's been days where you can get out and not worry about that stuff, but it's rough. And, like, I would say catching one fish in an outing is a huge success for winter Some fishing. Some days it is, yes. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Um, where to look? Well, first, I'd look in the rule book. To see what waters are open. There's not a lot open. And the, the second thing that I would say before you, I know where you're going with this, but what I would say is, I mean, where do you have access, right? Like if some, if some of these bigger rivers are all iced in, like it's dangerous. Oh yeah, big time. It's dangerous. Sure. And then there's no parking in some places because a lot mm -hmm. of these parking lots or yeah. whatever are snowed in. You're not going to park on yeah. the road, you know. Tough to get out of the parking lot if they're really icy. You right. get stuck there. And, um... You know, I posted something a little while ago. It takes like 10 to 20 minutes. If you take a spill, like let's say you take a spill and you're really, you're submerged in water in January, February. It takes like 10, 20 minutes for hypothermia to set in. Yeah. So like, you know, if you're going to come and fish in the winter in Maine, you need to like be a little more careful for sure. Yeah. Because if you take a spill, like your day's done. Go right. back to your truck immediately. Oh, it's always done. It's done. Yeah. That's it. You're over. So... Um, even if you don't take a spill, it's easy to just stand in one spot and not realize how cold you're getting yep. and like your hands are freezing and you know, it's just, so it's rough. I would say it's rough. And then as far as where to go, look in the law book. And then I would say, look for rivers that connect to the ocean. Yes. That was gonna be my advice too. Cause tidal waters are going to bring in warmer water. Yeah. And I won't give any specifics cause I don't want to see anyone where I go. And so that's all I'll tell you about the winter fishing scene. Yeah, those are two great things. So, so just to recap, look in the law book, see what's open, scout it out too. For sure. You know, you want to make sure is there parking, is there, is it safe? If there's ice shelves and stuff like that. Yeah, you you can't. If it's illegal to careful. fish on ice shelves in Maine. It's illegal to do so. Okay. So like if you're on the edge of a lake fishing into open water, that is illegal. 
You cannot do that. Interesting. Yeah. You cannot fish on ice shelves. I may have done that a long time ago. I I did when I was a kid. I did for sure. Yeah. It's illegal though. It sounds sketchy. I've always been worried about a big ice like clump coming my way too though. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you're in a river and like an iceberg, especially even in the spring, like when it goes out, you know, um, yeah. So it can be dangerous for sure. And it's not rewarding. (laughs) It's not like out West where the winter is, can be great. You know, if you can brave the elements, you can have great days. It's not like that here. It's just, it's just not. No, no. That's why we always wait until April and May. Right. (laughs) Tie your flies in the winter. Tie your flies in the winter. Um, great. Uh, next question. This is actually, I'll name the person here. This is from Nate White. Um, he said, am I ever going to get invited back (laughs) onto the podcast? Well, that depends if he brings us gifts or not, I suppose, you know, he's always bringing (laughs) gifts, but I, my thing is, you know, he's posting so many of these great flies. A lot of them are nymphs. I mean, every day he's got something different, it seems like. But until he starts posting some dry flies, I, I say I can't welcome him back. That's a good point. I, uh, you know, I'm getting, you know, his flies are just so amazing day in and day out. But I'd like to see some high quality dries. Yes. For sure. I agree. You know? I agree. Yep. Until I see that, not sure he, uh, he can come back. You know? Yeah, and I'd love him to come on and talk about those dry flies too. <laughs> Would so, you? <laughs> be great. I'm a huge dry fly guy. You know that. Oh, yeah, so of course. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. We'll get him back though. Don't worry. Yeah. He's, he's, he's great. And we love Nate and Nate is very helpful. I was just FaceTiming him last night to help me with my vice and, uh, he's, he's awesome. So, yeah. uh, next question, kind of a really open end one. I, I wonder if you thought about this one, if you knew about this one. So, um, what's your favorite fly to tie? That is an easy question for me as I've answered it about 8,000 times. And my favorite fly to tie is one that I have not tied yet for sure. I cannot tie, (laughs) I hate tying like six of the same fly in a row. Like it drives me insane. Sure. I struggle to do six. And so, you know, I do plenty of orders where I have to do like 20 of them. And I just, I want to pull my hair out for sure. Um, so my favorite one is one that I have yet to tie because, you know, I'll see something that gives me an idea and mm. I'll just be like, this is a great idea. The new A-Rex hooks that have come out, the ones that have like a shank and then they kind of are shaped like a C. It's like predator hooks yes, mostly, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's got a very unique shape to it. Do they have everything though? Or do they have like nymph and dry fly yeah, hooks yeah. or is it all just yeah, big, yeah. big games? Yeah. Like? I don't want to give A-Rex any plugs or anything, but their, their hooks are fantastic yeah you know they're really fantastic but um but yeah so they came out with a new hook that had a really new design that was uh, designed by gunner a guy named gunner he's one of the best fly tires you know predator fly tires in i don't know the world i would say i get he's just he does some really amazing stuff and um he designed it and it really opened up just a whole plethora of opportunities to tie new flies and I've tied many designs that I've never done before. And, you know, I've had, that was the most fun I've had tying in a long time um, because it was just new, you know? And so, like, caddis dries, I could tie it in my sleep. Yep. Brings me no enjoyment. Yep. I do it just because I need them <laughs> and just because people want them. That's yep. it, yep. you know? And so that brings me no enjoyment. It's the ones that you, you get an idea or you see like three flies and you want to combine it into one or you try something different. Those are, that's the ones for me that I'm like, 
this is awesome. I love doing this. For sure. I have a more, like, concrete answer. So <laughs> sure. I'm a huge fan of tying uh, Partridge soft tackle flies. Sure. They're really quick. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of different things with them, a lot of colors. Yep. You can add some dubbing in behind the, the hackle feather there or not. You can keep it really... You know, thin profile. Like you could just use thread, literally. Yeah. Like you could do thread in a feather. Like it's like the easiest thing ever. Um, And uh, you know, you put a bead on them. There's like so much you can do with them. But the reason I love them, they work like hell. Super effective. Mm -hmm. Two, I usually am tying with some uh, with some partridge that I shoot. Yeah. Which is really cool. It just has this like full circle feel. Oh yeah. Um, If partridge ate trout, then you definitely would have a full circle there. But it's not quite a full circle. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just got this very main feel to it, and it's, um, it's a great fish catcher. I mean, it yeah. just it really, really is a great fly. So. I agree. I agree. That's my favorite by far. Good concrete answer. Yep. Good concrete answer. All right, here's another fly. Here's another question, um, and this one's totally different. So, um, what is the spawning and migration cycle for stripers? Uh, this is from my guy, Tony. Great, great guy. Uh, great fisherman. Um, he threw out there that September seems like strictly night feeders versus June when there are tons of stripers and he thinks feeding kind of depends more on weather. So maybe you want to start with a spawning cycle? Sure. So here's how the spawning cycle works of striped bass. Um, so in the spring-ish, I- I'm going to keep this... T- to Maine. I'm going to keep this to Maine. Makes sense. That's yeah. where we are. Okay. Sure. So in the spring, they come up and they go into their native rivers where, you know, wherever they spawned, uh, you know, the Kennebec, Andro, Penobscot are three big ones, Saco, you know, that those areas. Um, so they go up to their nursing uh, areas and females mature at like age four. So... The four-year-olds, uh, female striped bass, and the two-year-olds uh, for males, they are eligible to spawn, basically, as well, or they're ready to spawn. And so they go up to their nursery habitats inland. Um, they go up into the coast, wherever it is, they go. They drop their eggs, and they don't make a bed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They just free float. So the males release their sperm, the females release their eggs, they fertilize, and then they free float downstream following the current and they hatch in two to three days when they hatch the striped bass are like two to three millimeters in length which wow, is like that's quick though yeah very quick so yeah. like r- extraordinarily quick yep um and then they stay in the estuary um in these sort of protective zones like kind of the they try to seek out sort of some refuge in the estuary and then when they're ready after a year or two um, they head out and they start their migration, the, the striper migration that everyone knows. So they head down south in the uh, you know colder months, and then they return in the warmer months. Yep. And they do that. Um, striped bass can live up to like thirty years. There's been some documented that are thirty years old, and so that's, that's about great. it. Which is great. Thirty years old. Yep. Like I mean, that's just a incredibly old fish. You know. So they spawn in the spring. Yeah, spawn in the when spring. they get when they get here, yep. basically, and do yep. they do they um, does their feeding pattern change at all with in terms of spawning? Like, are they more hungry at that time or after? Definitely, or? I mean after because they're making quite a migration. Mm. You know, so they've used a lot of energy reserves that they sure. built up 
over the winter down, you know, Chesapeake Bay and stuff like that. Yep. New Jersey, New York, top of the Carolinas. And so um, they made this huge migration. They feed on the way, of course. They're not like salmon where they just make a straight shot. You right. Know? Right. But they feed on the way, but they're still, they're, they're making a huge migration. And so, and then they release all their, um, their gametes in the water. So that's another big drain, you know, spawning. I'm sure there's, there's tussles and fights between males and females to get positions and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, that's why the spring is so great to fish for stripers because they're very hungry. You yep. know, they're making this huge migration they need to eat to keep going, and after they're done, they're just like, okay, I don't need to worry about reproducing anymore. Feed. I'm yep. just focused on feeding, and that's why June is such a great month because June is a after the spawn, and they're just focused on really getting the feed bag. The reason they come up here, one, their young have a safe place to grow, a safer, I should say, and two, in the summer months. The Gulf of Maine is incredibly rich with nutrients and food resources. Yeah. So they leave the rivers in the summer months, though, right? And they kind of yeah. go back into the into yeah. the Gulf, but not too far out, right? Yeah, no, yeah. And off, some offshore. You'll have some that stay in the rivers all year for yeah. sure. You know, especially the Kennebec. People who fish the Kennebec will know that they stay in the river all year. Um, same thing with the Penobscot, and same thing with some parts of the Andro. And so, you know, it's a mix, though. Definitely towards the summer month, your population off a little off the coast and even you know on the actual coast goes up a little bit compared to the rivers but um river mouths are always they're always productive because you have just a meeting of two different water sources and food is always there it's always present in some form so so that is the that's uh yeah that's striper cycle and when do they get out of here usually october yeah there i mean there are some that stay here all year you know, very yep. few, but usually October is when it starts to die down and most of them have headed south. Sure. Cool. And then the feeding stuff, um, that sounds like it's a classic case of you thinking something because it's happened to you. Mm. And so Tony, Like the night, the night feeding? Sure. Or, or the, whatever the June stuff or whatever yeah. he said, basically... Anytime you like with fishing, I have found anytime you think that you have like caught on to something that might apply to you this year or next year, mm-hmm. but it's not set in stone True, and it's probably not indicative of the rest of the population. So whatever you found, you know, about fish feeding on flies, you really need to flush it down the toilet because it will change. And so it will change based on many, many um, factors. Food availability Mm -hmm. is a huge one. How are the bait populations doing that year? You know, are the alewives booming? Then guess what? The spring feed on alewife flies is probably going to hit really well compared to, you know, whatever, some other bait fish that you might be fishing. But if the alewives tank and you still use that alewife pattern, you might not get as many fish. And you might be like, oh, well, this pattern stinks now. And it's like, well, no. It's not, it's not that it stinks or it's good. It's just when to use things, but depending on the year, depending yep. on what's going on. What are the water temperatures that June compared to previous Junes? Are they slightly warmer? Well, then their metabolism might be slightly higher, so they might be more aggressive during the daytime to feed. So, like, as far as the feeding stuff goes in the fall and, like, how it changes and stuff, that's a you're just experiencing something while you're fishing. That's not indicative of any like 
you know, holistic behavior, you're just kind of keying in on them on that week or that moment, you know, and that's important, you know, so you can go there on Monday, you're like, ooh, they're feeding really heavily um, in the morning during the outgoing tide. And so for that week, you'll probably be successful fishing the morning on the outgoing tide. If you did the same exact thing the next year, you might not be successful. Sure. And so that kind of concept, what he's getting at, I think is... Yeah, it's a uh, you know it's it's based off his experiences right. and maybe not. Well, fishermen like to think that there's a cycle and things are gonna happen the same way every year. Right. And like you hear about stuff like the same hatch comes through every year and the same mm-hmm. week at the same time of day. And people have tried to predict a hatch in other parts of the country at you know 10 a.m. on sure. May 6th. Yeah, the Hendrickson's are gonna be here. Right, that's mm-hmm. what they're like in New York. You know, so it's crazy. like, and I'm sure that you have found, I'm sure many people have found that one fly will be particularly productive one year and mm-hmm. then the next year it's not. It's true. That happens with me all the time. Yep. Especially, you know, I'm using like hundreds of flies every year and I'll use one and it'll be really successful and I'll go back next year and nothing. You know? I agree. And that's, it's not that the fly is unsuccessful. It's just there's a certain set of factors that are in place every single day yep. that dictate when and what fish are going to feed on. And you might have just hit it that day last year and it might not be the same this year, right. you know, or maybe it is the same this year, but it might not be the same in 10 years, you know? So I try not to pigeonhole any fish behavior yep. more. So it's a sliding bar for me where, you know, one year, if I mean, you're going to go back to that tactic to start though, just because sure, it worked for, for you sure. before. For sure. But and then if it doesn't, that's when you're like, all right, do I need to move or for, do I need to for try sure, to fly? That's when you start switching up. So I don't, I don't, I don't like to pigeonhole any type of behavior. Cause then again, it goes back to kind of the same, um, same behavior with the streamer, you get so focused in, you're like, this has to work. Yep. You know, this worked for me back then, it's got to work for me now. It worked for last year, it worked last week, whatever. And people like that with spots as well. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so, I, so, you know, I don't think there's any, I mean, there is a rhyme or reason, but it's so complex that I wouldn't even begin to guess what causes the striper feeding cycle year to year. Yep. I could give you a guess you know, within a year, because I know the alewife numbers and I know the, you know, the shad runs and all those numbers. And so I could give you an estimate during the time, but like, you know, for next year, will his statement ring true? I don't know. Yep. You know, I don't know. Anyways, that's all. That's the, the, that's my thoughts on it. Great. That's some great striper information. Um, all right. Next question is, seems very specific. I don't personally know the answer to it. And I also think the question is, it's not full. It's not a full question, but there's, there's like they're missing something. So, um, or they're alluding to something. So, it, the question is: Do older landlocked salmon and main systems still eat bugs as a major part of their diet? And my my question I have back to this person is: Are you saying I was opposed to just eating bait fish? I would assume. Yeah. You know, other than you know whatever. I mean, because they eat bugs. They eat caddis. They eat. Yeah, so Mayflies, eight stones. So I caught a twenty four five inch salmon, maybe twenty six inch. I, I didn't get a measurement on it. On uh, on, and it was easily over five pounds. Yeah, like no no question. Yeah, without, without you're not gonna have a twenty five inch fish. That's not. And I caught <laughs> it weight. on a size sixteen caddis jig. Yeah. So I guess that answers his question as to whether or not they eat bugs. How and, old is that fish? Uh, it's old. Yeah. The fish is very old, like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Sure. Also, if you go, like, every single year, I catch a 20-inch fish on a size 20 
I catch a 20 inch salmon to be more specific on a size 20 nymph every single year. Yeah. Like for many years running size 18, maybe or size 20. And the older fish are so much smarter in terms of fly selection. Yeah. And it's all relevant. So in streams, yes, the answer to his question is yes, they eat bugs in lakes. It's a little different. Because it depends on what food is available to them. So they're like they usually travel for bait balls. Are there great smelt populations? Right. Then that twenty-inch salmon's probably going to pass up on your dry fly that's sitting on top. Yeah. When there's a six-inch smelt swimming out front of it. Right. You know. A group of them. Too. But if you're in river, right? If you're in rivers, then yes, without a doubt, big fish eat little flies. Yep. Every day, every single day, for sure. Cool. Uh, next question. Um, and this, this is for people in Maine specifically, you probably know about this. If you don't live in Maine, maybe you don't, but, um, it's how will the NECEC, if constructed, affect trout habitat? And just, uh, some information, this is the New England Clean Energy Connect. Um, it's a $950 investment, sorry, $950 million investment. I apologize. That's it? The word million's a big one, right? I can build my own? Yep. Uh, that will deliver, it's going to deliver 1,200 megawatts of renewable hydropower to the New England Energy Grid in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, the 145-mile transmission line will be built on land owned or controlled by Central Maine Power. Um, a lot of Mainers are not happy about this because they feel like the energy is all going to be going to Massachusetts. Right, it's coming from Quebec, I believe. Right. Yep. Um, so we feel like Maine's just getting passed over. I think New Hampshire and Vermont both had this technically try to go through, and they both turned it down. And Maine seems to be warming up to the fact that um, this is going to happen. So, or at least the people who make decisions in Maine are warming up to it. But beyond that, how is it going to affect trout habitat if it does go through? So, I can tell you. Obviously, I'm not a, <laughs> I can't see the future, so I can't guarantee, you know, what I'm about to say will ring true or won't ring true. However, any time that there is a large development, a large clearing of forest in what's known as a riparian zone, which is basically the zone, um, it varies, but zones very close to water bodies. And this one's going over the Kennebec. Yep. Near the Forks, I believe, in, in yeah, it's, up up near Jackman, right? It's the Forks. Um, uh, what's the other town that starts to see? Oh, I forget. It's yeah. um, it's it's in the Forks area. Yeah. You're right. Yes. Any time that you remove these forested areas, it has a negative effect on trout water. Caratunk. Caratunk. Yeah, very good. And Sorry. now, you know, they're going to cross the river. And so I believe they're going to bury the cable underneath the river. That's what I understood that's as what, well. That's what I right. understand is what they're doing. And, you know, anytime you have to disrupt a river like that, obviously it's not good for the local trout habitat. Now it might recover after, you know, a year or two or whatever. And there are, there are mitigation laws in place to make sure that they basically put the river back the way that it is. And so, you know, there might be a momentary lapse in trout habitat where it's going across. Yep. But I have decent confidence that the areas that they actually construct on 
will be fine in a couple years. So they're, they're well, really if they're not clearing trees and all that stuff right on the riverbank, right, where you're going to have, you know, um, what's that called? Soil gets pushed in the river. Not degradation, but I can't think of like it. Erosion erosion, stuff, yeah, yeah. Yes, erosion. erosion. Erosion, thank you. Yes, erosion. I'm a math teacher, not a science teacher. So, um, for those of you who didn't know, I am a teacher. I'm a math teacher. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think that if you're just running a line underneath, that's probably, yeah, I mean, at first you're going to disrupt it, but yes. you're probably not going to be yeah, yeah it, too much. Yeah, it will probably be okay there. But what I'm really worried about is the riparian zones because the corridor runs along the Kennebec for quite some time, I believe, yep. is the last time I looked at And I think it is through, I think there's a lot of existing lines from what I've been reading at least lately, or, mm-hmm. or that's that's been kind of the mm-hmm. new news, like they're running it through existing lines at least. So you're not sure. maybe ripping down all this mm-hmm. land that they're making it sound like they are. So, but there's, it's twofold. The answer about trout habitat is whenever there's clear cuts adjacent to rivers, bad things happen for the trout. And... There are obvious reasons. I guess I'll list one. It decreases the spot, the the uh, sort of resting and spawning areas for certain insects, mm. and so your insect population typically goes down when you start clear cutting and making these big lanes near rivers. Yeah, that's obviously going to have a long term effect on trout populations. However. If you're looking at other animals, sometimes clear cuts are good, such as the uh, like the lynx. Lynx love clear cuts because mm-hmm. what happens is the next year you get all those little shrubs that start growing back. Yeah, deer love them too. And a bunch of rabbits move in. Yeah. So lynx love that. Ah, that makes sense. So you know, for as fishermen, I would be upset about the corridor um if you don't care about the energy or anything but as fishermen i'd be upset about the corridor because i think it will have negative impacts anytime i mean anytime you're cutting down anything surrounding a river or laying something in it that wasn't there previous it's going to have negative effects and um i think there are maybe longer term problems with say bird populations in the area so you'll decrease their nesting sites and those birds might be responsible for keeping certain insect populations in check so let's say those birds are you know keeping black fly larvae in check right and now those birds aren't coming there those black fly larvae take over caddis area now the caddis don't have places to survive and caddis are a more nutrient-rich food source than black fly larvae. So the fish food will suffer, which in then you know affects the fish growth, yep. right? And fish survival. So there's like there's so many complex systems like that that are going on. Um, these fish, how it is now, they seem to be doing okay. Yep. And so like to change it. In you a just way that you just don't know. Though. You just don't know. So yep. it's not, for me, it's not worth the risk. And especially what we're getting in that deal. I am not a supporter of it. Nor sure. am I. For sure. And I'm just looking at the Natural Resources Council of Maine here. And there's they said that it would, the proposal says it would cut uh, 53 miles of new line through undeveloped parts of the North Maine woods. Um, this destruction would clear trees and plants through 260 wetlands across 115 streams, a near remote beady pond. Um, it would cut right through the heart of Maine's brook trout habitat. 
um, including areas where public agencies and private citizens have spent millions to protect Brooktro. So I say get it out of here. So, yeah, and anytime you start, like... <laughs> That's not the question, but I say and, get it out of here. Anytime you start getting into the feeder streams, basically what they're going to do is when, you know, because they don't, you know, they care, but they don't care at the same time. When you're cutting down trees and stuff in the feeder streams, you had you add a lot of sediment, yep. and that sediment then gets flushed down, totally ruins whatever's living in that feeder stream, and also you start getting buildup of sediment in the rivers, yep. which then removes some habitat for algae, which fish, uh, f- which little bugs feed on. So if the little bugs don't have the algae to feed on, then the fish don't have the bugs to feed on. Yep. Well, if they're messing with 115 streams, that's a different story. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, that's and, just a lot. And to be to make sure that you're doing it appropriately and uh, safely on each stream. Yep. No chance. There's no. zero chance of that happening. How wide? Do you know how wide it's going to be? It, I did not see anything there on that. I mean, I think it's like telephone. I don't know how long are those. Wide are those usually? It's less than a hundred yards, I believe, is what I read recently, though. Two hundred feet. Yeah. Let's say if if it's two hundred feet wide all right if that's if i'm just saying if then that means that they're going to cut down it's 53 miles long yes of new stuff it's 145 miles total but 53 miles of new stuff that means that they're going to cut down 10,000 square miles of forest yep it's a lot you know so that's 10,000 square miles of bird nesting habitat 10,000 square miles of deer habitat. Yep. And, you know, that's <laughs> 10,000 miles of bug habitat. I mean, we got to get this thing out of here because CMP just has a horrible name in Maine. And well, of course. They, um, they've had a lot of problems recently, but this is just like a cherry on the top. So, all right, we're going to move on from that. Um, great question. A lot of emotions tied to that question. Um, all right, here's an interesting question. Um, that probably is a quick answer, but why is it when you're on shore, you want to cast out towards the middle <laughs> versus being in a boat, you want to cast towards the shore? I would attribute that to um, people being dumber than they think they are. Well, we always think that... Is that true? I realize two things with fly fishing when I watch new people. I, I always see two things. One, they want to try to cast as far as they can. Yep. So they want to go as far away as possible, it seems like. Yep. And two... I noticed that a lot of people cast on like a, a one, two, three system. Cause I think as humans, everything's, you know, one, two, three, go, right? We always count to three or count sure. down. So I always people one, two, three cast, right? And then they want to rip it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, listen, fish are at your feet a For lot sure. of the time when you're on the shore. In Maine, big time. Yeah. Like, what do you like better, the shore or the middle? The shore. The shore, yeah. Oh, without question. Yeah, I agree. The, I agree the shore is right. where everything, right? Because, you know, the shore, okay, if you're a fish, just think of it from an energy standpoint. You know, you're a fish, you're in a river. If you're in the deepest part, that means you need to work the hardest to go up and down to get your food. Sure. Because you have the most area to cover and you have to really focus on what's going by because you have to not just look in one area, but you have to look at the top of the water column, the middle, like there's just so much area, so much going on. If you're closer to shore in shallower water, one, 
you don't have to work as hard to go get your food because it's coming right by you. Well, are there more feeding lanes on the shores too? You know what I mean? Because like when it's deeper water, it's usually slower right down below. But you see a lot of these feeding lanes. I always associate feeding lanes with bubbles, right? You sure. see these bubble lines. Those can be all over the river. Yeah. I don't um, know if there's more or less. I guess I'm thinking of a bunch of different rivers. I, it depends. I think on it's, a depends on the the river, it's a depth issue. It's a depth issue to me. On... I don't like fishing something that's more than like five or six feet deep most of the yeah. time. And let me, can I change my answer a little bit? Go ahead. I like the shore from, from, um, uh, let's say, well, from like four o'clock in the afternoon to 10 a.m. the next morning. Sure. And then from 10 a.m. to three or four, I think I prefer the middle. Yep. Because fish tend to move deeper when it gets hotter yep and the sun's higher they try to hide from predators and stuff so i i but going back to his question why people want to do that i honestly think it's people trying to think they're smarter than they are which would mean they're dumber than they think they are and so (laughs) so blunt (laughs) and so they're trying to outsmart themselves yes they're like oh you know what i'll cast there because nobody else has cast it there well, you for know. the record, I, I did that a lot early on, and, and well, there are even times when I go to New Water and I still do that, so... Yeah, for sure. And I guess it, I'm a dummy. I, well, I don't think anyone's going to disagree with you, you know? I think that's pretty clear. Well, I mean, when you're in a boat, too, you don't, like, ride right up against the shore. Of course, of course, of course. Like, and you're always in the middle when I you're in a boat. I think also people think, like, you know, if I can cast to the shore, my fly can be in the water for the longest amount of time, from yep. shore to here. So I'm covering the greatest area. Yeah, that makes sense, too. And I, I don't think that makes sense, but I understand the thought process behind yep. it. What I would tell you to do is do more research on finding out where fish live. Yeah. So instead of just... In the body water that you're yes, in. Yes. So instead of just being like, well, hey, I can cover the greatest distance. Instead of doing that, focus more concentrated areas. Focus on more concentrated areas. So you can take more casts in a smaller area where you know there are fish. That's how you become more successful than heaving it out there, you know. And I guess it depends on your fish as well. You know, if you're fishing for stripers in the ocean, okay, heave, yep. it, out, heave it out there. Sure. Um, because it's pretty much uniform, you know what I mean? You're just fishing off the, you know, you're fishing, you're casting 100 feet into the ocean. Right. It's pretty uniform 100 feet across to where you're casting. But in like a trout stream or, you know, a river of sorts... I don't Focus. even barely. I don't even barely cast half the time in a trout stream because I'm. I, it's all short game, you know. Same. It's all sh- within just ten feet of you, fifteen feet. Roll cast, roll cast, or just lift yep. and flip, lift yep. and flip. You know. Yep. So, I'm not sure why people do it. I too am a dummy, and I fall to that as well for sure all the time. Yeah. Because I I see something and I'll be like, you know. Well, like out west, they uh, love to cast to the shore. And, for sure. And, but they have those, I, those cut banks a lot well, of stuff, and okay, we don't always I, have that. When I went last year or two years ago, when I went to Oregon to fish the Deschutes, the um, salmon fly hatch was going on, and I saw a rainbow trout, and it was sitting in, I don't know, four inches of water Yep. underneath a little brush where a bunch of salmon flies were hanging out, and it was just picking them off as they fall. It was just picking them off. And I was like, I was kind of fishing like I do here, and I was like, I'm standing on top of them right now. Right. You know, I was like, I, I don't even know how to, f-. so I started, I changed up my approach, and I started catching more fish. I started basically casting directly downstream and directly upstream on the bank, and I started catching rainbow after rainbow after rainbow. So, you know, 
in Maine, brook trout and salmon are the same thing. If you can find a really tight spot that has a good seam, fish are chilling there for right. sure. Right. And the moment you step into the water, they're gone. They're out. Yep. They've moved to a new location. So I would say always try to, you know, before you step into the water, at least look and say, are there any decent runs very close to shore that I can cast to? Yep. Anyways. I um, the next question, I'm going to leave this one to you because I have no idea. And the only reason that I know about this fish is because I've seen it, like, through ice fishing, mm-hmm. is a burbot. So the question is, how would you go about, and I'm just looking up a picture of one here because I feel like it looks like a catfish, kind of. Uh, kind of. The very long. A cusk is, a cusk is, is what the, I, I'm yeah. not sure if Mainer's term is a cusk or if it's burbot. Are they the same thing? Yeah, they're the same thing. Okay, so I know what a cusk is then. But I think Mainer's calling them cusk. I, I can't remember which which name is the Mainer name. I think like, cusk like, is the Mainer it's name. It's like togue. It's yep. like togue, you know. So how would you go about catching a cusk or a burbot on a fly in Maine? I would, two ways. One, I would ice fish for them with a fly. Yep. So like jig a fly. Yep. So basically. They bottom feeders? Yep. Like down? Yep. All the way on the bottom. They typically feed at night, so I would jig for them at night. Mm. You can catch catch them during the day, too. But, you know, they are primarily active at night. I would take a fly that you like. Maybe, you know, a, a balanced leech or something. Yep. And I would find them. Find where they are. I'd take a mini fly rod. You know, you can take an inline reel or a jig, which is basically a fly rod, and um, use your fly and jig form. That's the easiest way, for sure. Or you could take your entire, you could take your full fly rod out on the ice if you wanted to. I mean, what you know, no difference really, and jig from that way. Or there is a river, <laughs> um, in Maine that. It's, well, it's a branch of the Penobscot that has them in, like, abundance. Interesting. And they're around these pillars, and I only know this because I electrofished them, and they, um, they feed, they're very small, they're, like, they're, they're the young, and they, they live there kind of for protection, and I don't, I don't know, there's, the young seem to live there, and, um, you could definitely throw a little woolly bugger around those pillars, um, and catch one, for sure. You do know. people catch them like at, it, like not in the winter though? Because a lot of people catch them through the ice. Like everything, everything you look up on them, everything I've heard about them, it's always like night fishing for cusk. Yep. Usually in the winter, people like sleep in their shacks, yep. right? And they go out and you pretty much just you know, drop a dead piece of bait on the bottom and make it smelly, and boom, you're good. Jig around. So it'd be really tough, and like it would not be productive for sure because they they can't really see anything. Yep. And they primarily uh, detect their prey through scent. They smell, or they actually taste them um, with their little whiskers on there. Their barbells, they're called. And yep. they, they taste their food. So a fly, if you could dunk it in, like, fish guts, then you'd have more success if you were to jig it. But um, but if you just used your ordinary woolly bugger, like, you know, just whatever, or balanced leech, you would have... It'd be slow going. Yep. It'd be really slow. I think you're really selling me on taking a canoe out into the middle of some pond and or lake and in the middle of the night and dunking my fly <laughs> in fish guts <laughs> and jigging it. Look, he asked the question. You wanted sell. the answer. It's not my fault. It's an interesting question. I told you the answer. I yep. gave you my best answer. So the real answer is go ice fishing for them and potentially do use a fly if you want to sure. jig it. But all right. Um, next question. I like this question a lot. Um, I get this question a ton, uh, usually when guiding people. Um, 
is it worth it to spend the extra dough for higher end waiters in boots? Same thing. Same goes for boots. I'll let you answer first. I won't answer first. I like this one. <laughs> My short answer is no. Um, everybody, you know, everybody loves Sims waiters, right? Sims waiters are great, but they're very expensive. Okay, but do they still get holes in them? Yes. Do they still leak? Yes. So they have a great program when you turn them in, um, when you when you get holes, you can send them back, right? You can get them fixed. Um, I believe you still have to pay for them, but I don't know for sure because I've never gone through Sims. Um, I've always owned uh, waiters that are cheaper. Um, usually I'll go for the lowest end at like an Orvis or an L.O. Bean or something like that. And I have to be very honest, I've beat the crap out of some waiters for like three years that are like the cheapest ones from L.O. Bean or from Orvis. Not to plug either of them because I don't love either company personally, but that's another that's another question. Um, but they but they lasted for me, right? And the way that I look at it economically is like I could buy like four pair of these before I could buy one pair of Sims waiters or something. But I'm gonna go on the opposite end of the spectrum for the boots. I do think you should spend more for some nice boots. Um, I've had higher priced boots last longer. Um, I don't love felt soles. I've just had the felt come off and it drives me nuts. Um, I like the rubber soles, uh, but with some, with some spikes, but I'll also tell you, I don't love this, the spikes that some of these companies have. They don't last very long. I know Greg, if you go on his main fly guys website has a great blog about how to do it yourself with spikes for boots. Um, I don't, and, and this is other questions here. Are you fishing the salt? What do you, you know, how much do you fish? Um, these are all great things, but my short answer is no, I don't think you need to spend for higher-end waiters. At the same time, I wouldn't go buy a pair from like Martin's or Walmart or something though. Um, go get yourself a nice cheap pair of Orvis or Hello Bean waiters. I've bought the next lineup and never had success with them. Always have gotten holes. I've tried it twice with beans, like the Kennebec waiters, right? The next yeah. one up. Yeah. And just gotten holes in like literally the first day out. And I'm yeah. like, this sucks. Yeah. So there's my answer. I totally agree with the waiter take and i agree with the boot take i want to disagree to make it a little more interesting but i i can't because i've had the same experience i've always gotten cheap waiters and like last year i put over 200 days on the water with orvis's cheapest waiters mm-hmm. fine did great all, all i'm the same thing and i bought their second highest pair last year and i was leaking within four trips yeah so i did great so i agree and trust me nuts you know you can like you said it's perfect it is perfect you can buy four pairs of those for the same price as their you know upper end ones right and it's like okay so i can't zip my waiters down (laughs) to go to the bathroom so i can pee but i just have to pull them down you know like whatever so i agree and then boots um i had the which i'm gonna get again i had the the Boa system L.O. Bean ones. Yep. Fantastic. They lasted me like five years and I put close to a thousand trips on them and they were fantastic. Yep. And now they, you know, they, they've broken now and it's like, but they put in a thousand, a thousand trips yep. in the salt and in fresh water. I'm a shoelace guy personally, just cause if something did break, you can easily repair a shoelace with another. I always carry a spare sure. shoelace with me. In my, Boa system. My you ever replaced Boa system? They no, I've never replaced them. Oh, I had them though. Super easy. They give you free ones. Yep. So you can get a free BOA system replacement. Yep. You just go to the, like BOA whatever 
say what you need. They'll send you a free replacement pair, and then boom, you just stick it right in whatever pocket. Is it bulky though? Can you carry it with you? Oh yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's small. It'd be like carrying. It's like carrying a liter. Well, know? I guess if I learned how to do that instead of lacing up, lacing up a shoe is as simple as it gets. Yeah. Oh, so. of course. Well, I mean, Boa system. You just you just crank it. You know, you just spin a dial. No, I mean like replacing. replacing. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's just as easy. All right. So I'm just I'm not I'm unaware. You're I, just an old timer. Know. Get yeah. off my lawn yeah. right yeah. now. <laughs> well, just an old timer. I live in the right state for that. But I agree. So uh, to go back to his question, I agree with you. Cheap waiters spend a uh, you know extra hundred bucks on yep. boots. I do have Sims boots that I really like, and they've lost me a long time. And no felt. Yep. No okay. felt ever because they trap, they transfer, uh, they transport organisms to. Like, a lot of states, you cannot wear felt yep. because it's illegal. It should be illegal in this state. There's no reason it shouldn't be um, because they little critters get trapped in there, and they stay moist, and then you bring it to a new water body. Yep. And so you introduce – you actually are a great vector to introduce species without knowing it. Yep. So if anyone has felt soles, please change them um, so that you don't inadvertently transfer organisms from one body of water to another. And I also, on a side note for boots, I just started wearing studs last year for the first time. They're great. I bought like $50 worth of studs from Sims and they all broke, not all, but like 80% of them broke within like that day or two days. Yep. Um, so this year I'm going to go to my local hardware store. I'm going to follow Greg's article for and sure. I'm going to give it a try with his with his uh, take there and yep. see how that goes for me. But I do agree there's a huge difference between having studs and no studs. Have to have studs. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Yep. I'm really glad that I started last year, but I need yep. some better ones. Uh, next question. Why do you catch and release? That is such a great question. I know you wanted to end on this, but I'm running the show here. So. No, you, you run the show. This is, you, know, you, you do. So for me, you know, I have no issue with anyone who keeps a fish within the law. None. No issue whatsoever. Agreed. It's your prerogative. You want to do it. You have the right to do it. It's within the law book. Whether the laws are right or not, that's a discussion. That's a discussion you can have. But if you're within the current laws, right, you shouldn't have any prerogative with someone keeping a fish. That's their that's their right. They have that right. Okay. I personally don't keep any because I have an intimate relationship with the understanding of the difficulties that fish go through from birth to death. And that intimate relationship through studying them, through researching them, through educating others on them, I have just developed a personal relationship with them. And I feel I'm doing them an injustice by taking their life for something that I can get at a grocery store. I can go and buy rainbow trout at Hannaford if I want to eat it. Sure. I don't need to take their life. Somebody is already taking it for me in a, in a farm or something. Okay? Yep. And so... For me, to take a fish is being greedy. For me. I'm not saying well, it's you can't for... buy brook trout though. So what about sure. what about stocked brook trout though? I have no interest that's, that's in, I have no interest in eating a fish that's been eating pellets its entire life. Well that's where I was gonna go with it. No interest. Um I almost always catch and release. I would say every year I maybe keep one or two mm -hmm. like 10, 11 inch brook trout up on a certain pond I like to fish. Sure. Um I do like to eat it, but I don't, I don't like to, I, don't, I hate the idea of eating something that's been growing up in a tank. Me too. Eating pellets. You know, I just feel like there's a disease or something like that. Chock full of, yeah. chock full of sketchy antibiotics me. because yeah. they are, you know, those, those fish tanks are yeah. disease vectors and so they're heavy on antibiotics and I'm, I'm out on that. And like, 
I just know, don't eat fish very often in my life anyway, to be I honest either. with you. Um, again, because I'm aware of what it is that is inside fish yep. and especially like saltwater fish, you know, if you can, if you were able to do an analysis of a wild caught saltwater fish, you'd see how much plastic you are consuming. Yep. It's quite alarming. And yep. so if I told you that you were eating a bottle cap with your, you know, with your, uh, tuna steak, you probably wouldn't eat it because right. you know that there's, but you know, so for me, again, it's just personal. I have a personal, intimate relationship with fish. They have been give. They've given me great joy and great success and a fulfillment in my life. And therefore, I found I find it just one. It would be going against sort of my my own moral and ethical code that I have built um, to you know kill something that is providing me such joy. It just doesn't make yep. sense to me. And yep. so that's why I catch and release. Not, I have, I don't want to push that on anyone if they want to, you know, take the same path that I have and they want to just catch and release. I think that's great. As long as it's legal, I don't care. I do see people keeping illegally sometimes. Sure. And I tell them really. I don't, I don't like that. Um, I don't care. And feel free folks, um, to speak up to people, but at the same time, no one wants to get into a, a fight on the river or anything like that. But if you see something illegal, you should call a game warden. For sure. Um, like, without a doubt, call a game warden. Yeah. Immediately. If you see something yeah. and you're not being... Take your smartphone, too. Take a picture of yeah, the people. You're not, <laughs> you're not being, you know, you're not being a dickhead if you call somebody out for doing something illegal that's hurting a fishery. Yeah. You know what I mean? You would call somebody who is robbing somebody's house, right? Who's somebody who is hurting society. You know, yeah. it's the same It's the same thing. Right. We There's a resource that we share as anglers. We all share it. It's nobody's. It's, right? It's nobody's. We all share it. And if somebody is impeding our progress or hurting a resource that is yours, rightfully so, then you should feel comfortable, one, approaching them, and two, calling a game warden saying, hey, this person is doing illegal activity. Because, you know, by doing that, you're you're creating a better fishery. If you feel like they didn't, like, cordially accept sure. your message, right? And like, like, you know, if they're being a jerk. I would it. agree that you should go talk to them first. Yep. And be like, hey, do you know that what you're doing is illegal? You know, and if they're like, if they're like, oh, you know, I did. There is times where people they just don't know, they you know, know, and that and that's fine, you know. Yep. But um, but if they're like, screw you, you know, get out of here, go call a warden. Hey, wardens love to bust people. Yeah, they, they love it because most day in and day out, you know, they're just cruising around. Right. They get stuff. They, you know, they want to do stuff. They want to help. A little action, man. Right? Give them some action. So, yeah, I'm, I'm totally not against reaching out to a warden saying, hey, this person is snagging fish. Hey, this person is keeping fish where they're not supposed to. Hey, this person is using a Rapala where, you know, they, it's only supposed to be, you know, barbless single hooks and they have six treble hooks on. You know, I'm totally, I think that's fine. Yep. That's cool. how I feel about it. Hey, we really went down the the rabbit hole there. Yes, we did. I'm very passionate about that subject. I know you are, as am I, and as as are many people who yeah, fly fish. They should. Be. Um, I think it would be nice if the um, uh, spinfish crowd also jumped on that a little more. But <laughs> it seems to be an us versus well, them thing sometimes. But I too wrote a blog about that. You did. I did a great yep. blog, and I don't. Uh, I think that's a miss. Nomer that there's like because I know plenty of spin fishermen who are law abiding, yep. 
they use one hook. Yep. They like look out for the fish, blah, 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 blah. I don't know a lot of spin fishermen, and that's my problem. I know a lot of fly fishermen who do crappy things. Or yep. I have seen, maybe I don't know that, but I, I have seen have, yes. a lot of fly fishermen who do really yep. crappy things. And but you're so, around fly fishermen more than spin fishermen. Sure. For the most part. Sure, 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 sure. But, you know, I just think that I don't want to place blame on, I don't want to give all spin fishermen a bad name because there are plenty out there who of course are trying to do the right thing they just you know they spin fish and so i don't think fly fishermen are better or worse i think we're the exact same we're both doing the same but there's a stigma around it out there right and that that's why it's bad there shouldn't be stigma stigmas are negative right in in general you know so to remove that stigma i'm trying to say that you should treat both fly fishing um, people and spin fishing people the same. So if you see either one doing something wrong, you should approach both of them yep. to try to educate them first. And then if they both disagree with you and they want to be dickheads, then go ahead and call the warden and slap a $250 fine on them and say, have a good day. Well, you've now sworn twice, so I have to put the explicit marker on this have I? podcast. Yeah. I didn't swear. What did I say? You said dickheads. That That's not a swear. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> This is a family program. Okay? I will swear if you want me to swear. I've sworn on past episodes, okay. but to to speak on that too, um, I'm not drinking tonight. Um, Greg Greg spoke about me. Uh, the last episode we did was our short. It was our uh, mini mini episode on smallmouth bass, and he said it was by far my best one. Um, I was not drinking at all. Not that I'm a really I'm not really a big drinker. I drink maybe once or twice a week and have a glass of whiskey. But with that being said, um, so I'm not drinking tonight, so I'm just um, hopefully a little more clear. I'm looking out for the listeners, okay? I'm trying to keep the listeners engaged. I'm trying to keep you as sharp as possible, all right? And you just had, you were very, not not, not drunk, you never drink, you drink like one or two beers tops, but... You were sleepy towards the end. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I got young right. kids. Maybe your kids. Yeah, I got young kids. kids. Yeah, we we yeah, talked about yeah. this. And this your is, dog. This is real. You, know, you got a lot going on. You know, you're uh, you're doing. You know, teaching from behind a computer screen. Now I see how it could be a very stressful. It's, you know, stressful. Life, stressful life. I understand. I know what you're alluding to that you you taught for six hours straight today. So <laughs> so you're also I, tired. For those of you who don't know, I also teach, but uh, I teach biology and uh, I teach in person. You know, so yep. you know, I too get tired from my job. I talked six hours straight today, so you know, I too get tired. But you don't see me slugging back whiskey <laughs> and then. <and, and laughs> <it's... laughs> All right, so to a totally unrelated question now. Yeah. Do you ever fish straight midges with grease leaders? Okay. Can you explain? To I me, think. To me? I think what this person's alluding to, and this is my guy John, great guy. Shout out to you, John. Um, I think he's alluding to fishing dries, like fishing like a Griffiths gnat type pattern. Um, something that can get very easily wet and sink. So greasing up your leader with like gink or something like that, maybe, maybe five or six feet. Right. Um, I've done this before, but it's very hard to do that on a lot of waters that I fish because there's a lot of white water, a lot of little waves coming off. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're on like a glassy pond, and you're fishing a really small pattern. Mm-hmm. Is this a good tactic? I I use gink all the time. Yep. You know, I I use... Um, on the fly or on the leader or both? Both. Both. Yep. And yep. you know what? I guess... So I use it on the fly for sure. Especially if it's a... I want it to be either like really high or it's a little more turbulent water and I don't want it to sink. You know, then I'll really gink it up. Um, and I too... 
I don't know. I go up my leader a few feet. I just yep. string the leader through my fingers, which have gink on it. And I'm not sure why I do it. Because I, you know, with the fly, the gink kind of sets into the, to the materials. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of stays in there. But the leader, I think it just washes off. Yep. Like immediately. Yep. Yeah. Right? Like it's just, it's, you know. It's uh, mono or whatever, you know. Right. So I don't think it soaks in or anything, and I don't think it helps at all. So I'm not sure why I do it, but I guess I do do that yeah. just out of habit. You know, I don't know if it actually helps or not, but I definitely do it um, with midges for sure because it's tough to get good hackle wraps on like a really small right. midge, and so they sink easily. Right. So and they're hard that. to see because, oh, yeah. you know, our waters here are very tannic. It doesn't just blend out. It blends in very well. But you also, I get this question a lot from, like, clients and stuff because there are times when I want to fish a smaller fly because I think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard to do with somebody who has really not practiced a lot what you're looking for. I mean, you're basically looking for a tiny profile on top of the water. Yeah, it's hard. you got to see the end of your fly line as it lands, right? Like, yep. locating a fly can be very hard. Yep. Um to the point where I tie some giant flies sometimes for people just to see, just, just to, to see. run a dropper off of. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, It's because e- it's easy to see. But that's a good tactic, too, for some people. If you don't know, um, if you want to tie up, like, a white wall for something that's really kind of bushy and then run, like, a, you know, like, maybe a 20 or 24-inch um, uh, dropper off of that, that could also be a smaller dry fly, like, if you're going to run, like, a size 20 BWO that you can't really see. Yeah. Um, sure. that's a great tactic and your front fly kind of acts as like a strike indicator in a way. Yep. 100%. Um, I have a question for you related to this too, though. Also, sure. I have, um, noticed in the past that my drive, my dry fly line at the end of it, um, will sink like the last two or three feet sometimes. Sure. Is that me not taking great care of my line or is that a line issue? I mean, cause this is, this is like real perception or real gold, you know, some pretty good um, dry fly line. Definitely. Part of it would be keeping good maintenance for sure. Yep. And then part of it is that that line will just, sometimes it gets pulled under mm-hmm. from the current and there's nothing you can do. Yep. You, you, you know, a cork would get pulled under. Um, but definitely keeping your fly line clean. Like I need to do that because I haven't done it in a little while. Um, just soaking them in like warm soapy water and then really drying them out. Yep. That will definitely extend the life of the line and keep it floating um, better sometimes you know you just get not good line and yep. it doesn't float great you know that does happen yep. um and i've noticed some lines that might have floated better than others but it's weird because sometimes it'll be the same exact line just on a different size so, reel or something so so i am launching my own floating line my own five weight floating line and i tested many out and they are not all the same yeah. I can tell you that for sure. And even the ones that you're spending mucho dollars on yep. are not, you're paying for the brand most of the time, I, not the line. I'm starting to see that more. Not that they don't perform and cast well, but mm-hmm. like staying floating to me yes. drives me nuts because yep. then it drags your leader down a yep, little bit. For sure. And then what John's talking about here with grease leaders, I mean, it may not be a leader issue for you. It might be yep. a fly line yep. thing too. And so. so I think that's sort of, Trial and error. That's kind of like you got to find a line that really fits your needs and find one that you like. Yep. And, you know, again, you have to make sure that it's not the water doing it and that it is actually your line that's sinking. Sure. To do that, the best way to test it is on a lake. 
Yeah, just somewhere where there's no Where there's no current. current. You right. go out on a lake and you say, okay. On windy day. You know, is is this line floating or not? If not, try cleaning it. If that's yep. not working, then you get a crap line. How often do you clean your fly lines? Once a year. Yep. yep. At the end of the season? Yeah, once a year. Or I, before the beginning of the season, which one? Yeah, I, I usually do it somewhere over the winter. Yep. I, I, haven't, just, I haven't done mine yet, I, and it's driving me nuts. Yeah, I just, you know, whenever I have free time, whenever I can sit down with a glass of whiskey and take a couple, you know, an hour or two to, to clean my lines. I'll like, I'll re-grease any spools, especially saltwater ones. I'll re-grease them and yep. I'll really clean. If there's any like rust starting, I'll try to scrape it off and like really, you know, clean it with, um, some like, you know, some, uh, Seagram seven or whatever the, the gun oil, you know, try to yep. buff them up a little bit and, uh, Round soak oil. the lines in warm soapy water. And the, um, do you like the two bucket system, where you run it? So you like put it, you put it all into the soapy water, right? Yes. And but not all. Like you don't need to empty your whole fly line usually. No, no, no. Depending on what, you, if it's like trout, like you don't go into yeah, your backing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, you should. Uh, I mean, well, love I know, to. Yeah, you know. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak for yourself there. Well, I, <laughs> I never go to my backing. I'd love to. <laughs> my gosh. Um, but with that being said, so you put it all in one bucket, soapy water. Let's sit for a few minutes. Yeah. And then you. Then you run it into a clean water bucket, yep, for sure. right? Yep. And you're as you're doing, are you passing through a towel or something? What I usually do is I usually sometimes I will let the entire reel sit in warm water. Yep. I'll put the whole thing in. Yep. And then I basically take them apart mm-hmm. and let them dry out like for a week. Gotcha. And that, with the line on, obviously with, with the with line, the line on. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I won't use soapy water. I'll just use warm water. Yep. Um, but that loosens up a lot of dirt and grime and you stuff. clean it after that with like a rag or anything? I, or yeah, I'll like run a... my line through, basically you can, there's like line uh, cleaner spray. Yeah. And so I'll just spray it on a towel and then yep. I'll run my line through it. Yep. And then boom, I'm done. Rio has this stuff with like a fly agent or something like that mm-hmm. that, you, that you run it through whatever. But here's another question for you. Do you ever put any of that on your line? Because like a company like Rio, they sell stuff that can kind of like, like, Grease your lineup, right? So that it kind of like stays more slick. Slick, yeah. Right. I don't. I yep. don't. And you know what? Again, that's all about finding the right line. I know that you casted one of my lines. Oh, my gosh. And it was the, it's, I'm convinced it's the best five-way line. What's the, the line? In the state of Maine. I have no idea. I got it 10 years ago. So you just don't remember. I don't remember. That's but it's, it's literally. It's really helpful, folks. It's literally in the best condition <laughs> ever. And it's amazing. It's easy. It's super easy to shoot 100 feet of line with that. Yep. Like, like nothing. And it's like a five weight? It's five weight. Right. Like you can just it's insane. Want, it's insane. So I yep. have no idea what, I have no idea what line it is. And I'm going to be really sad <laughs> when that line goes. But yeah, so that's my, that's, that's our, that's our line question. I casted Greg's rod last year, his five weight rod. And. And this line was amazing. Um, I was like, it yeah. was just crazy. It's a game changer. Yeah. It's, it's just different. Yeah. It's hard to describe. It's I think just he's different. just withholding something from us folks, and he knows exactly <laughs> what's going on, but he likes his advantage. So, um, Plus, do we all need to cast 100 feet with a 5 weight? No, 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 no we don't. Not. But it'd be cool if you could. Yes, it's pretty sweet. <laughs> like effortlessly, too. It was yeah. pretty nice. Yeah. All right, next question. Um I'm going to defer to you on this one for the most part because mine would just be opinion. Okay. Um, taking into consideration put-and-take fisheries, how well do you think stock trout do? Or how long do they live? Or I, I think that's the question. Uh, you know, if the question is how long do they live, it's not very, um, especially in put-and-take fisheries. Um, you do get a small percentage. It's always, almost always 
under 10%, almost always. And the reason is because there's, you know, if it was that good where trout could survive, they wouldn't need to stock it. Um, but the areas where they are stocking, let's take, what are some major ones? The, like, you know, the Presumpscot, the Little Androscoggin, yep. um, you know, the, the Royal River, those, you know, southern Maine water bodies where they're stocking, trout just simply don't have the habitat there, whether that's the summer habitat, the winter habitat, or the spawning habitat. Yeah. If they don't have one of those three, they're screwed. Or all, all of those or, three? Or all of or those just three. One, or, like, can they get away with just one of those no, three? No, no, no. They need right. all three. Like, yeah. you need all three yeah. of those to be successful. I mean, summer on the sump, you may as well be taking a bath in it. Of course, right. Because yeah. that, that water, and even, so, the sump, for example, in the summer can get up to, you know, 75, 85 degrees. Absolutely, like yes. Like, bath water. Yes. And then the lakes beneath it are only 25 feet deep. Right. So they have no uh, thermal refuge, and their oxygen content is not high enough for trout to survive. Sure. Now... There's some holdover, though. There might be a spring, like a little spring somewhere yeah. where a couple trout can make it. You know, something like that. But that's not happening in large numbers. But that's less than 10% of what they're stocking. So, right. you know, stockfish are stocked for a reason, and it's to provide anglers, especially in the put-and-take ones, it's to provide anglers where, with an opportunity where there exists none. That is the that is literally the reason they stock, and they have to do that year after year after year, because right. fish the fish that you want to fish for just cannot live there the whole year. Now they can thrive there for part of the year. Yep. You know, take the little andro from May to you know late June. It's a great fishery. Yep. You know, because they dump you know several tens of thousands of fish in there. Um, they're willing, they're rainbow and browns, they're aggressive, you know. Right. Um, like the, some of the little andro though, it's different. It's different. They have a lot of like tree cover there. There's a lot of shade there. It's yeah. not as wide really yeah. as some yeah, like the sure. presumpscot. For sure. But the thing with it is, you know, during the summer, it's 85 degrees yep. and there's very few deep holes. Yep. There's no, there's not a lot of springs that come in. So trout populations don't do great. You know, right. do, or do some hold over? For sure. I mean, for sure. But what's again, going on with them in the winter? Is, is there not enough um, um, food in the water for them? Are they not well-versed to eating that food? Like, how long does it take a fish to be like, oh, I guess I'm looking up for pellets, and now I'm going to eat caddis larvae? That's quick. Day, days. That's pretty quick for them. One, you know, one day. It's yep. super quick. Yep. Um, it's really, really quick that they transition from, hey, I don't need pellets anymore. I can bite these things that are moving. And then, like, you know, a week or two into it, they're like, really, hey, this is a bug. I need to eat this. Yep. But the winter, it's the issue because they don't... So during development, a natural fish it has to go through several winters before it becomes catchable. And so it learns strategies, where to go, what to eat, how to survive mm. the winter, mm. whereas the stocked fish are simply swimming in a circle and waiting for pellets to drop. And do trout in the winter look for springs a lot too? Yeah, for sure. Because the springs they're, are warmer? They're looking for... Well, they might... Well, yeah, they're looking for any thermal refuge if there exists one. And yeah. if not, then they're looking for a little slower water, deep pool, something where they don't need to exert as much energy. Yeah. And, you know, things like the Royal River, Little Andro, Saco, those things, they just don't have a lot of those. Yep. Um, and so they're just not great trout habitat. And you know what? They, they probably were never great trout habitat, you know, 
like probably never. No, and that was a so the question I have is spin off of that. So a lot of these waters that we're talking about, not all of them, uh, definitely not all, but but some of them are ones that are attached to the ocean at some point. Yep. There's usually a lot of dams on those, those yep. rivers. So, like, let's take the Brzomskit. Everybody knows it. We're, sure. If you took all the dams on the Brzomskit, you're allowing more sea run fish into the into there. But is that necessarily improving trout habitat? No, not really. Right. Um, the, the river would change a whole lot sure. if you took all the dams out. Like, I mean, a whole lot. Like, crazy, crazy, crazy. Yep. And... Uh, so you might improve. be narrower, right? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not though. Oh, interesting. Um, so like the Presumpscot stretch where everyone fishes, I think that would get much, much, much wider. Interesting. Yeah, much, much wider. Well, if you took out the dam above it, obviously, yeah. but because yes. you have Sebago Lake yep. above it. But what about all the dams below that though? Um, what would happen to that stretch then? Well, you'd have to consider it would still be wider above. True. So it would probably they're be controlling wider. the flows there. Yeah, and it's all it's dependent on. Um, Oh God, I can't believe it. the 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 ground, whatever that, the geography, but not the geography, the topography. Topography of the ground. Of the ground yeah. It depends a lot on that. Um, but Sebago is so massive that that delta where like, the Presumpscot starts would be massive. I mean, yeah. it'd be a huge delta. So I I don't even know if the section where we're where, you know where we fish a lot where they stock a lot of fish, I don't know. If that would even exist, I think it would be a delta. Yep. I don't think it would be a river. That's if you took out the dam yep. from Sebago Lake. Yeah, right. I think it would be a delta. So but I the mean, ones below it, if you took those out, then the river would change big time. Yep. But you know what? Those so you look at the the rivers right now would not they wouldn't narrow because you have to think there's okay you have um, Dundee Pond, you have North Gorham Pond, and those would narrow. Mm-hmm. But it would keep the river system wide beneath it, you yeah. know? And there's like, I don't know what, 10 dams on the Presumpsca? I don't know. There's, there's a, not that there's, many. There's, there's a, not anymore. How many are there? Five. Well, there's one at the mill. There's, there's one behind the jail, so that's two. Okay, then there's Dundee, then there's North Gorham, and then there's the Sebago one, so that's five. That's it. Okay, so five. So yeah. five dams. Yeah. I bet it would narrow it off. Is Dundee the one that's over on um, uh, Gambo? Is that the Gambo Road one there? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It goes North Gorham. That's the top one. So it goes... Yeah, North have, Gorham's the first one there. Yeah, North Gorham's the first one. Which then, dumps into Dundee. Dundee. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. below Dundee, I believe, is Gambo Road. Yes. So that's your second okay, one. yes, yeah. And you have the one at Mallison Falls behind the, the correctional facility. Yeah. And then at the mill, I believe there's one also, but I think they have a nice fish ladder there, I believe. I believe I've never seen too. it. I believe they do. And too. now they took out the one behind the yes. mill in Westbrook, the, yep. uh, the old mill. Yep. And I just drove by there today and was actually looking, and is that a fish ladder that I see there that's like, it looks like staircase? Yep. That's like yes, it is. But it's, but it's underneath, it's flat. It's not like it's literal, literal, literal stairs there. No, there are, there's like stations. There's, there's like stations. It looks like a sweet fish ladder. I mean. It is, but it doesn't, shad don't go up it, alewife really don't go up it, blueback don't go up it, and a bunch of other. Could they go up the natural falls there, though? Um, yeah. It's a pretty decent set of falls there. Yep, for sure. Interesting. Will they? Uh, yeah. I yep. don't see why not. So, like, if I'm fishing behind the, the prison there, yep. could I potentially catch shad, alewife? For sure. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Um, shad and alewife, they have this super unique feature. Um, if you've ever, have you ever held an alewife? Yes. Their bellies. 
they're they're actually one of their nicknames is razor bellies, um, because if you've ever felt their bellies and you go against the grain of the scales, yep. it's really sharp. Interesting. I didn't know that. I and know that. a guy theorized, and I believe in this theory because I've talked with the guy about it, but that it helps them to basically grip the rocks as they are swimming up cliffs. Interesting. Because when they start to fall back, their belly catches, yeah. and then they can push extra. It's a really unique adaptation. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So, I, okay. you know, I researched LY for three years, like really, really researched them for three years. So, th- what they can get up is impressive. Yeah. Like, you would think there's no way a fish could get up it. Yeah. You know, you're looking at it and you're like... <laughs> well, that's what I look at when I look at those falls. I'm like, yeah. that seems really hard. I mean, these aren't like... These aren't like the salmon of the West that are I'm, I'm talking going hundreds these, of miles. These are... They're... What they can get up, you would just be like, there's no chance. That's crazy. And they can get up it. Same thing with salmon. Atlantic salmon. Yep. 10 foot cliff. Jump right over it. So yeah. 11... <laughs> so 11 feet is the highest documented one. 11... That's, I think it's 11 and a half feet. That's crazy. 10 foot jump for... You know, that's just crazy. So anyways... Well, we went from stock trout to alewife, so, so stock going trout, down the wormhole. Stock trout, <laughs> how they're doing, not good. Yes, I agree. Not good. Yep. And that's why they're put in take. Yeah. They want you to, t- the state wants you to take them. Mm-hmm. Next question. We have two left here. Okay. I think we've had some great ones. We've gone down some interesting rabbit holes yep. that I think are good, though. I, I, I really had some questions for you, like clean and fly line. I, I, I took something away from that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, next one. We've covered three species so far in our short series. Yep. Uh, salmon, landlocked salmon, brook trout, smallmouth. Yep. Uh, what's your favorite fly for each species? Let's start with the salmon. Salmon. My favorite? Yeah. So this is not what works the best, but what is my favorite? Correct? Yeah, I mean, you would think those would go hand in hand, but if you want to... They wanna... do not. Not even close. Oh. They do? Do they for you? Well, my favorite fly... I, mean, I know what mine is for salmon. I gotta be honest with you, my favorite fly for those things have not caught me the biggest of those things. For sure. But they catch me them more regularly than others, I think. It's interesting. My favorite for salmon is the lightning bug. Interesting. It is a nymph. Yep. And I just love it. Yep. It's not very successful. Does that have turkey <laughs> bite on the back? Does it have like the, the split bite? Nope. nope. Like a it prince does not. nymph? Nope. It does not. It just has like so basically, if you look it up, the lightning bug, you'll probably see a lot of fireflies. But the lightning bug, the fly, is um, very flashy, mm-hmm. silver tinsel body, mm-hmm. um, has a tail. You can use, like, you know, pheasant tail fibers, just some little tail, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Um, the thorax is a ball of dubbing, basically, and it's usually um, white or very shiny in some way. Um, some people will use peacock. Yeah. Um, and then the wings. I use like um, flash, basically. I make little flash wings. Like, you know, instead of using your partridge feather to make like yeah. the, the nice you put, wings, you put a little, I put a little flash. Yep. And then they have a, um, a little flash back over the top yep. and then a little UV bubble right on top of the flash. Do you think salmon like more shiny like your bead heads yes. than brook trout? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. I They're don't know great. why, but I think they do. The only reason this is my favorite fly is because I was fishing a uh, salmon-heavy stream and I caught eight salmon in a row, mm-hmm. in a row, on this fly. Yep. And I've never had that same success. But it's always been my favorite fly since then. So I always carry a few, and I rarely use them. Brings you back a cool memory. But it just brings me back to a, like, 
the best streak I've ever had in yep. my life. Yep. Eight salmon on eight consecutive casts in the same spot. Sure. Incredible. I like, um, for salmon, I like nymphs that are pink. Um, Rainbow Warrior. You would. I've tied a pink scud. <laughs> yeah. And literally, I've never seen anything that color, like that exact color, but, yeah. you know, how things look in the water are different than how they look yeah. Yeah, yeah, out of the water yeah. to the human yeah. eye. Yeah. Um, I've had great success on pink nymphs for salmon. Good. Um, Good. A, a shout-out fly for salmon, too. This is a funny one. Sure. Uh, chubby Chernobyls. Okay. <laughs> I've had a ton. I've had a ton of big salmon. I mean, salmon yeah. are the ones who come up and hit your uh, strike indicator yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So I mean, brook trout do too. But True. yeah, salmon are just psychos. They're the psychos of, they're the, so, of the trout world. Yeah, they're so eager. Sometimes. Yes. They're eager. Yeah, That's a great they're way to put go. It. All right, let's go to brook trout then. Um, brook trout. I would say brook trout. My favorite fly is probably. A beadhead caddis larva. Yeah. 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 Um, I have my own that I use. Everyone's got their own. But I have my own that I use. But it's, you know, the gold beadhead, black collar, green body. Now, are you a... Wire. Are you a... Um, uh, do you use ribbing? Or do you use, like, green ribbing? Or do you use... Um, are you, like, a dubby dubbing guy like you like it nice and bushy so dubbing body and then i have a thin skin back Mm. so all the way down yep all the way some people just use like a brown sharpie sometimes yep color over that thin skin back all the way from the bottom wrap it up right to the collar tie it in and then i might brush out the body to make it a little buggier yep but you know I, I usually only fish those in like size 16, 18, and 20. Sure. So they're never big. So, you know, yep. what's the difference between a really nice one and... Because if you flip over a rock, most of the times when you see the little green ones, they're size 16, 18, and 20. Yep. And uh, there's definitely a two-tone to them. They're usually much brighter on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And that thin skin provides that dark sort of profile. Yep. Um, whether or not they see that, I don't know. But... Um, that's my favorite brook trail one for sure. Cool. Um, my favorite brookie fly would have to be in, and don't use this folks because it's worn out and I don't use it as much anymore either. It, like it, it was a good run and I feel like it hasn't happened as much. I love a nice, uh, coffee bodied, uh, uh, Pat's rubber legs for him. Um, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I love stonefly nymphs. I just knew it. I love seeing them come up with that, that big hook in the side of their mouth. <laughs> It's great. Um, but with that being said, um, I have not as much success on them in the last two years as I did in the oh, previous years before well, that. So. Maybe that's because everyone and their mother is using that. That's what I mean. I think they're getting overfished. So, folks, look for a different Stonefly Nymph pattern. Cause sure. Look for mine. Join join the join the club with me. Um, everyone can use mine, and then I'll use something different. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Um, I, also, um, I also really like... Uh, clink hammers on top for them too but not big ones not big brook trout but sure. small brook trout yep oh i love a clink hammer one of my biggest brook trout ever came on a clink hammer yeah yeah now do you tie yours yep. with thread body dubbing or quail body definitely almost 25 percent with a dubbing body yep 25 percent with a um 
thread body of some sort. Yep. Usually it's like thread with a really like extra small wire or something, yep. something that's really light. Yeah. Um, and then probably 50% of them I tie with either a biot, like a turkey biot, mm-hmm. or a quill. Quill, yeah. Yeah. So the answer is quill. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is quill. Right. Turkey biot is a close second though. I use a ton, even goose biots for sure. Yep. You can go to Joanne Fabrics. This is a secret. I can't be about to tell you this, but you can go to Joanne Fabrics. <laughs> it's like you have an influx of males there next week. <laughs> and you can you got to search around. Or females. There's or like females. a there's like a feather area, and um, you can buy a lifetime supply of black biots for three dollars. Interesting. A lifetime supply. Nice. So I have a lifetime supply um, that I bought I don't know five years ago. I'll never go through it. I mean, yep. you literally get thousands and thousands of biots. You'd need to tie 10,000 flies with it, you know. So what um, you're saying is next week after we hear this, there's going to be a crap load of Toyota Tacomas over at... Yes, <laughs> it's going to be <laughs> a bunch of fly fishing guys that walk in, and they're like, hey, where's your turkey biots? You know, the, the people there probably don't even know what it is. You know, they have no idea. But yeah, so Joanne, if, if, you don't, if, you, if you're a fly tire and you haven't uh, gone into Joanne Fabrics, you are missing out. Let me tell you, you're missing out. Unless you like spending... You know, ten bucks for like ten of them. You know, whatever a hundred biots that are like crap, anyways. You know, so yep. interesting. Yeah, that's just that's my. I'm trying to help everyone out. Well, it sounds like you've gone over the rate of the place. So I well, no, I, you only need to buy one pack. Right there, you go. You know, there's your secret. So uh, last fish is uh, what's your favorite fly for smallmouth? That is easy. That would be a seven to nine inch slider, white, white, all white. Yeah. That was a slider, a pattern that dives and pops up. Yeah. So, okay. like, um, do you know the, you know, like, a popper? So, you know a popper. Yeah. It's got the big lip, and then it kind of narrows out. Sure. If you just turn that around. Yes. It turns into a slider. Yep. So, you have to angle the head down so that when you pull it, though, it catches, you know, like, it catches the water, mm-hmm. and it pulls the fly down, um, like, you know, depending on how hard you pull it, you know, a couple inches down. Right. And then, boom, it pops back up. Anywhere between, yes, six and like nine inches long. Interesting. How do you like to retrieve it? I like to retrieve it basically like hard pull and then let it sit for like three, four, five seconds. Nice. Hard pull, let it sit. Hard pull, let it sit. Similar to how I fish a popper. You know, yeah, similar. You know, I typically don't like strip, 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 strip it. Sure. Um, But what I do is I usually fish it with like a one, two watt um, hook in the front. Yep. And then I tie uh, like a... 50 millimeter shank on the back, sometimes two shanks if I'm feeling frisky that day. Yep. And uh, it's long, like long, like big. But, you know, it, it basically represents a dying fish. Yep. And if you've seen dying fish, where I fish for smallmouth, there are big bait fish that are dying, big bass that are dying. Yep. Big whatever that are dying. Chubs, probably. And yeah, chubs, suckers, you yep. know, whatever. And uh, fall fish. And you ever get pike on that fly? Oh, yeah. Big time. I'll hit that, too. Oh, yeah. Big yeah. time. Sounds right. Yeah. So that's my favorite. Cool. Mine's very simple. I'm just going to leave it at it's... Uh, I love a blue or a black uh, popper. Blue? Small popper, too. Not a big one. You're a small guy. Yes. <laughs> I like the small popper. But with that being said, be prepared to catch a ton of bluegill as well. Okay. You're not... You're not you want the action. 
Yes, I'm an yeah. action guy. Yeah. I don't need. I'm not looking for the biggest smallmouth when I'm yeah. pushing that fly. Yeah, it's a treat when you get one. For sure. It's also a treat when you catch a pike on one, which I've done before. Interesting. Which was really really unexpected. Yeah. It wasn't a big pike. It was maybe like 20, 21 inches. Yeah, Piker, they're fun. Yeah. They're it was, fun. It was pretty cool. So. Yeah. All right, that's a great. I like that question. Thank yeah, you for yeah. whoever asked that. That was a good one. Yeah. All right, here's our last. Qu- Actually, we have two more. I skipped one. Um, I don't know why I, I skipped sure you it. Want to read it or? I'll read it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Somebody asked if I was to come to Maine, what is the best time to come chase big brook trout? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, Just give it. Give a month or a time period. Okay, mid May, late September. Right. Those two. Right. Those two. Yeah. Not not, not through. Mid May. Um, maybe even late May. Yeah. I'll say late May or late September. Yep. That's it. I would say for me, um, my experience is sometimes early May also. Sure. Um, or even late April. Um, you're not going to get a lot. Mm -hmm. But they're big. But they're big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've had, like, sometimes you just get, like, when they come back in the rivers or whatever, like, if they're not always river residents and they're they're traveling back through, like you can kind of catch them in like pods sometimes. It seems like, mm-hmm. and where there's one, there's more. And usually the bigger fish seem to be the ones who come back first. Like I've never in April caught, um, in some certain water systems, I've never caught like a ten or twelve inch brook trout. Like Same. they're always yep. sixteen to eighteen yep. to twenty, yep. somewhere in that range. To twenty four. So. Yeah, good god. <laughs> Those are those are those are fish of like my dreams and my nightmares because I've yeah. caught them, lost them, seen others catch them. Yeah, they're just it's cool that they're there. That's my favorite part of it. So, yeah. oh, cool. sorry, there's one more question. Also, I, I yeah. I'm on the yeah. second page here. Yeah, what's the book that impacted your fishing the most? So, the book that impacted my fishing the most. Now, at first, you know. It's so interesting because I didn't really start reading any books for the first, like, I don't know, eight years that I was flying. Like, I, I just sure. didn't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't. But um, there was a book called, we just, I just looked it up to Something Nothingness and Fly Fishing. And you did look it up. I'm going to look it up again because yeah. it was, it just, I read it front to back in like, being nothingness and fly fishing, that's what it's called by uh, Michael Cecchio, and I read it front to back in like two days. Yep. And it was just so. It's this guy, he's like a new New Jersey um, guy, and he's like a writer or something, and he's living like the city life, but he has this like great desire to go chase trout yep. out west, and he basically quits his job sells his home, quits everything, and just goes and chases trout for months. That's cool. And it's like, it's his true story. and That's a dream of mine. It's like, <laughs> it was just so amazing. This guy, he had such a drive to do something, and yep. he just dropped everything and did it. And he takes yep. you through his journey as he fly fishes. He's as long as he didn't have, like, kids and a wife and all no, that. No, 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 that, no. That wouldn't no, be very cool. No. I actually, I, 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 he didn't have kids or wife or anything. He might have had a girlfriend, though, or something like well, that. But you They know, come and go. Yeah, they so. come and go. And then, <laughs> so, yeah, it was just the story, like, it really, like, impressed upon me that, you know, it's okay that you're having these psychotic feelings of fly fishing. Sure. 
So then it made me, it made me feel more comfortable yeah. about expressing my, like, psychoticness with fly fishing. Well, I mean, there's probably not a day or a half day that goes by that you don't think about something fly fishing related. For sure. All year round. All year And I'm the same way. Every day. And my wife thinks I'm crazy. Of course. Um, but Which you are. part of it. You yeah. are, though. Yeah. I mean, and it's whatever. okay. That's my thing. Is like, this, it's not the worst thing to be crazy this about. This book made me realize that it was okay for me to be a psycho. That's what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yes. I fully now embrace the psychoticness that I have become, you know? Yep. And one of the questions, my friend, Ben, shout out to Ben. He's, uh, if you haven't checked him, he's the, he's the, uh, pocket water media. Pocket water media. Yep. You know, he asked a question jokingly cause he's a jokester. He thinks he's real funny. You know, he said, why are you the way that you are when we were asking for questions? And that kind of ties into this question, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that feeling of being okay with who you are and what you're about. Yep. That book kind of gave me that, you know, it was like, man, all right, this guy took it to the next level. I'm going to take it to the next level cause I feel comfortable there. And then, you know, I meet people like you, I meet people like Nate, you know. Yeah, it's, meet, you it's, know. it's cool to see, be, this is, this is the biggest thing of this podcast for me. Yeah, and I've been there, meeting people there are, on my level or above my level, and it yeah, jacks they, me up. Right, so doing, in doing this, it was the first time that I ever met people that even approached where I was at, yep. you know, and I was like, oh, there are other people just like me, right. you know, and that was cool. There are people that think about it every single day. Hell yeah, man. You know what I mean? So... That book really helped me or, or gave me some, like, inspiration to express my true feelings about fly fishing rather than just internalizing them, you know, and thinking about it on a day-to-day basis, but not telling anyone. Yep. Not starting an Instagram page, not, you know, doing whatever, yeah. you know. And yeah. So that, that book was... I, I think that would be up my alley, you know. I'm, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's neat. And it's an easy read. It's not difficult. And, you know, it's just interesting. Like, it's, it's interesting. There's something powerful about having, being able to, um, like a lot of people like to go out and they like to take their phone with them and photograph every fish they catch, you know, and then they want to share it. They don't want to share it, whatever. Um, there's a really powerful feeling about just going out and fishing, having no technology with you or anything. And I mean, literally I've seen people with like thousands of dollars worth of cameras on rivers to take pictures of fish. Right. But there's something really powerful about just going out Mm -hmm. by yourself, catching fish, Putting them back. There's no picture. The only memory that you have is in your head, right? Yep. There's no, there's no need to share it with anybody else. Um, that's a really powerful thing that I, I, I hope more people embrace than they let on through social media. Sure. But um, I think we all have those moments where not everything is on a camera, right, yeah, or a video, and yep. and it's um, those are the moments that stick with me more than like pictures yeah. I've taken and stuff. So, and you know, for the people that do like taking pictures and the people that bring the really expensive cameras, like yeah. I, I would never. You know, well, how many times is a huge fish rolled on something? You have no video evidence of it. It's just in your brain and it's a little half second clip and you're like, all right, yeah. this brings me back to this, this sure. spot, right? Like that this, has nothing to do with this recording. This it. year I was with two friends and we were fishing for salmon in the fall and I threw this like size 18 BWL clink hammer. And like a 24 inch salmon came up and just rolled on it. And I stuck it and it popped off. And I was just like, I can see it so clearly, you yep. know, like I literally can see it. And uh, it bent my hook back straight, basically straight my hook. Yep. And uh, same thing, I was on, I was up in the Allagash and, you know, 
I was fishing that white slider that I was talking about, mm-hmm. and a easily over 48-inch muskie cleared like a wake, like it like moved the water. Yeah, it's like a shark. Came up and like separated, like it was like Moses or something, separated the water and took my popper and like inhaled it, and I can see it so clearly, like almost to the point where it's like, I didn't even know fish were capable of doing that, yep. you know? And those moments will stick with me forever. Those are sick. And I'll just be able to, like, envision them forever. And they kind of haunt me slightly. But right. it, it, it's so cool and so empowering. Yep. And, yeah, I have no video of it, yep. you know? And so, like, you know, but it's, yeah, those those moments make you, like, appreciate a lot outside of just the sport. I don't know how, but they're connected in some way. It just makes you appreciate. I always like hearing stories like that from people because I have very similar stories. And a lot of people, when it comes to fishing, they be like, yeah, whatever you're telling a tall tale or Mm -hmm. yeah, that fish gets two inches bigger every time I talk to you. And at the end of the day, yeah, other people that do that for sure. Are we all guilty of that? Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but with that being said, we all do have those thoughts in our head where it's like, we saw something that was almost surreal. Mm -hmm. Right. And (laughs) yeah, yeah. That's what keeps the addiction going, though, yeah. too. And so. you see something, and you're like, you almost don't believe it. Yeah. In the moment, you're like, that didn't just happen, you know? I'm going to give a very short answer for this one. Okay, yeah. You gave a nice long answer, so I'm going to go short with okay, it. Yeah, sure. Um, my favorite book, and I'm going to be that guy right now, I'm going to be a jerk, um, is one that I don't want to mention because there are not very many um, uh, copies of it and it hasn't been in publication since the 1950s. So that's interesting. On a second close, though, for me, and definitely a guy that I love to read, and I have all his books. I don't know the, I don't remember the names of them all, but um, uh, John Geerich books are just yep. Amazing. fantastic. He's yep. very blunt. He uses a little bit of profanity. He tells some funny stories. Yep. It's not always straight up fly fishing stuff too. And um, yep. I really enjoy reading his stuff. It passes the time for me in the winter, yep. especially. So. Can I throw in a uh, second one that? Yep. The uh, Complete Angler by mm. Isaac Walton. So that was written in 1580s, 1540s, and it's a... I've heard of it. It's a... If you fish and you're serious about fishing, you have to read it. Interesting. You have to read it. It's called The Complete Angler. I hate how-to books, and I hate the... Agreed. Like... Top fifty places. Yeah, I agree. Wherever, like those yep. books, and no offense to the authors or people, but at the end of the day, I don't love those books because it's like spot burning. Yeah, there's spot burning, but also like how to stuff. Like I don't know, I just can't get how to stuff from a book. You know what I mean? Especially yeah. fly fishing. Well, Maybe like a lot well, wiring up if, something electrical. Okay. But pause though. Pause. 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 For new. Angler, though. There's too many good resources out there now that are now videos, though, and stuff like that. Yeah, I know. What if you don't want to go on YouTube? What if you like a book? There are a people, full there book, are though? It's like, like, I just want a little article or something, a little blog post. There are people that like reading books. Yeah. You know? It's true. So, if you... The how-tos, you don't like them. I understand. I, I, like, don't, I, I don't like them either. I, I like, like stories. Them. Sure. I don't like them either. Story guy. But we're, we're seasoned. We've done some things. True. So, I don't need to know where fish are going to live. I don't need to know how to roll cast. Yeah. But if I'm new, I think books are a great resource for new anglers. Who See, are... those books weren't helpful for me back in the day. Like the how-to oh. fly fishing guide from Mellow Bean or whatever. It just to me, like, like you're, I can look at it now and go through that book and be like, yeah, that, I know that yeah. is or that is yeah, or yeah, that is. But yeah, I didn't yeah. learn through that book is my point. Yeah, yeah. But there are some people who it might be helpful for. 
anymore. True. So I, I don't yeah. want to turn away new anglers from getting books. No. Because I think they can be helpful. But I but I agree wholeheartedly that getting out on the water is much more helpful than reading a book. Yeah. Like, without For question. Sure. I think that's why I just enjoy stories. Yeah. And... Because they relate to people. Really... Going with someone, the the biggest help for me was going with someone who knew what they were doing. Yeah, that was the, you know, that right. was the biggest help. Right, whether it's a guide or someone you know that fishes right. a lot who's right. willing to kind of take you under the wing yeah. for a little bit. Yeah, even for a day. Even know? just one day, I agree. Yeah. Like I went with a guy, so I was trying to cast, like learn by myself, like the first I don't know week or so. I started fly fishing, and it was just disastrous. And then I went with a guy, you know, I tried reading on the internet and looking at videos. I tried all that shit, you know, and I went with a guy who really knew what he was doing. And in 20 minutes, I was exponentially better than I had been in the past two weeks trying just based off videos and myself. Cool. You know, and that it was the same so way. For most people. It was the same way with fly time. Yep. I did everything. And then I took, you know, I joined a class at UMaine and man, I became like exponentially better in just two hours. Yep. I know? took an adult ed class on fly tying in Portland. Yeah. I mean, it, it helped though, I bet. <laughs> it was something. It was a starter. Yeah. For sure. What so, you need. You do. And I really, I for those of you who don't know, I do those, at, I do the beginner fly tying class at Eldridge Brothers Fly Shop down in Cape Netic. Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing those and I'm really missing it this winter. Yeah. That's... Um, it, it's part of COVID that sucks. Like yeah. everything. I mean, nothing's really great, been sure. great about COVID, but all right, let's go to the last question. Okay. Last um, one. We were going to try to keep this like around an hour, a little bit over an hour, and we're at an hour 40. So. <laughs> well, people, if you don't want to listen, then you know shut what? it off. You know yeah, yeah, shut it off if you don't want to listen. But yeah. people are always complaining that you don't post enough or that we don't do podcasts enough. And it's right. like, well, So one, we just make longer podcasts one, than we do. Yeah, I'll give you longer podcasts now so you can listen to and from work for three days in a row. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. There's our answer for people on that. I don't like short little tiny little podcasts. Screw you guys for (laughs) (laughs) screw you. If you don't like it, you can leave. Okay. All right. I literally haven't had complaints on the length of it besides from, from my wife, but she doesn't understand why someone would sit down and want to talk about this for two hours, but it's because we love this shit. This is our lives. Exactly. Same. Uh, Very, very same. My fiance basically is like, yeah, I listened to the first, you know, 30 seconds and it was good. And it's like, <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> you right. appreciate it. But if you are like us, you yeah. want to listen to this stuff, yeah. and that's exactly why I made this podcast in the first place because sure. I wanted to hear stuff like this, and I'm yeah. learning and meeting great people. Last question. Okay, okay. I'm ready. Uh, and I, I want to save this one for last because I think it's a really great question. So the person who asked us, thank you. Um, and everybody else, thank you. You all had great questions. Yeah, this did. one stuck with me, though, because it's just a, it's a cool question. So if there was one river in Maine to fish, from the headwaters to the ocean, which would you choose and why? I want to see if we have the same answer here. Mine is, boy, that's a tough question. I, I didn't see that one. I wasn't aware of this question. Um, do you have an answer? Let me start while you think about it. Yeah. You don't have, so. off the top of your head, you can't just. If I had to pick one for the for the rest of my life, is that or, or if I just pick one? It right says now? if there was one river in Maine to fish, that's it. Okay, so like if, it was, I, it was if only I just one could only fish one, headwaters to the ocean. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah, I got it. It's easy. Go ahead. Penobscot. Okay. Without, without question. Okay. I mean, it's not even. It's not even remotely close. And to I'm me. gonna guess your reason being is because there are sizable salmon at the beginning, and yeah. abund- an abundance of them too, which is. And, and at the end. And at the end. 
Oh, in terms of the Atlantic? There's Atlantic salmon in there. True. So and also, the, the smallmouth fishing on the Penobscot is probably the best in Maine in terms of size. Yep, without without question. In terms of size yep, of smallmouth. I would say without question. I mean, so it, if you want, you know, you know, it's a big fish river system. Yeah, it's a big, there's just big fish up and down. And, yep. you know, if you're going to go up, Lobster Lake is on that, yep. on that river system, which has some of the biggest brook trout in Maine. The, you know, you get up to like the Sabumic area, mm-hmm. some of the biggest trout and salmon in Maine. Obviously, you know, you have the west and the east branch. Trout and salmon galore. Sure. You have the main stem, the main stem, smallmouth bass galore. Yep. Big smallmouth bass. And just big smallmouth bass in like pristine areas. Yep. Areas that are like true wilderness. Then you have stripers now at the bottom. Yep. Um, probably not big ones, but you know, you get schoolies and stuff. And if it's the only river that I can fish forever, okay shad they have a great shad run i used to fish yep. for shad in there all the time when i was in college yeah um a tremendous shad if you've never been shad fishing or hooked into a shad it's like you can get a lot of them too right a, yes if you could practice fight. setting the hook on and like they are pound for pound i think the hardest fighting fish in maine that's cool easily like that's cool. it's i don't even think it's close and then what um, do you fish for them what size rod are you using so i would use like well it depends you can use a six weight and like have a lot of fun right. Um, seven weight, but you need something really heavy to get down quick. So mm. like heavy sinking line and the flies you use are basically, they're crazy looking. They're just like chartreuse, bright pink, yep. you know, some heavy jig head with like a little tail. They look like nothing really. And I don't know why they bite them, but they do. Um, so seven weight, something like that. And yep. then, so you have stripers, smallmouth, shad, you have Atlantic salmon. They have the biggest run. So if I'm going to fish it forever... I mean, you know, if we're kind of throwing reality out of the door it's got here, everything in it. I'm going to fish for Atlantic salmon too, so I have the chance to catch 20-pound yeah. Atlantic salmon. Right. And then, yeah. It has everything. It has, it has, it has everything. It yeah. doesn't have pike and muskie, which I'm very sad about. Yeah. And so I'll give up those, though, for what it's going to offer. So I'm going with that's, that's pretty good. That's what I'm going with. That's a good answer. Um, you know, and really the only answers for this can be technically really are the, Ken- the Kennebec, the Penobscot, the Andro, so- the so- the Saco, but that really runs mostly through New Hampshire. Eh, about half and half. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, you yeah. know, it, trout, the trout waters for it mostly run through New, New Hampshire. Hampshire. So, right. yeah, um, the Andro is very similar too. But yeah, I gotta go with the Andro just because I've spent my mo- the most time on it. Mm. And for me, it's more. Um, I like the difference in water from the top to the bottom. Not that the Penobscot, I mean, the Penobscot's crazy. Of course, yeah. All of these three rivers, are headwaters hold trout. Uh, and, yeah, and all three of them are just crazy. Not so much salmon, the Andrew. Look at us bashing on the Kennebec. Unbelievable. Well, I just haven't spent, I haven't spent as much time there sure. as I have in the other two. Yeah. And no, if no, I have, same, it would probably same, be more same. partial to me. Same. Um, I really like the stretches of Maine on the Andrew where it first starts out in Maine. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm not in Maine in some ways, which sure. is weird because I yeah. love Maine. No, yeah, it's different. It's different. But you get this, like, big mountain feel. You get the mountains yeah. all around you. It's yeah. pretty cool. Um, and yeah, then... You, you, you like, Gilead, that area up there. Yeah, that yeah. area, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely very beautiful. And it's kind of... It's close-ish. You know what I mean? Like, yes. two hours, you're you're there from, from Portland. Well, you, you grew know? up in Lewiston, so it's a shame that you didn't go with your home water there, but... Okay, um, well, listen, I... <laughs> It, it would be my second, however, however, the reason I didn't pick the Andro is because of the limit of distance. And yeah. so, how many, t- like, the Penobscot's our biggest watershed, 
you know, and that is like, you could spend your whole life and not hit the same stretch, you know, for more than once or twice, you know, like it's so big. I mean, it's just so massive. Uh, the Andro, like it's, it would be easy. That's why I like it for me. It's just close. It'd be easy to cover all the ground, you yeah. know? So you flow from Gilead, you float down, you could float down to Mexico, I guess. Yeah. But then, you know, you get the Mexico section smells like, you know, garbage well, a little bit but i almost like it in some ways like that yeah, because it's you like the grinder aspect yeah like it's dirty, weird you like it dirty and it's just it's cool that you can catch fish in something that i feel like it's from like a simpsons episode where there's sure. like yeah, three-headed yeah. fish dumping yeah, yeah. into the i mean that you know that's my home water and that's where i spend you know <laughs> right they also have monster i almost picked andrew i almost think but penobscot's just not even close for me yep. the the andrew has mega pike yeah massive it's true so it's true for if you've ever if you were hooked into like a 10 15 you know high teens 20 pound pike on a fly it's it's it changes your life yeah. a little bit yeah you're it, it, it excites you a lot yeah, you get it it. yeah yeah i think the coolest thing for me about the andro is that it's it's you can be right by a city and you feel like you're out in the woods yeah you feel like you're far out there yeah you're a city boy yeah yeah but also <laughs> but also i just like the i just like the variation of of um like the scenery of it, for in sure. a way. Yeah, yeah. Not to sound weird. Yeah, it's but very different. Like, it's not just trees the whole way. Yeah, it's just different feeling. And, and not that like the Penobscot and the Kennebec don't change too. Sure. I mean, they're all fantastic. But there's no, no good. Yeah. There's no good answer for this yeah. one. No, so no, I no there is. This is Penobscot. That's True. a good answer. True. And the Andro is the second. The Kennebec. <sighs> I just I don't. You, I'm the same with you. I haven't spent enough time right on the Kennebec to really appreciate it. Yep. You know the East Outlet and yep. stuff. Okay, but. Yeah, I just, you know, yeah, it's it's tough for me to truly appreciate it as I haven't spent enough time. So I'm sure there are people that are going to be like, you're an idiot, should have been the Kennebec, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, the stripers, the stripers in the Kennebec alone. It's pretty cool. Are cool, you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, we're, we're blessed. I'll say we're blessed for sure to yeah, have these three, uh, these three systems to pick from, you know. And yep. yeah, I just, I think, yeah, yeah. Pretty so cool. I, I have one question for you. This is a surprise to him. Look at his face. If you guys could see, oh, his I thought face. you were asking the <laughs> listeners, no, not me. No, not not the the listeners. I don't. You know, they they can ask me. Well, questions. first I'll of all, let me them. let me just answer before. Yeah. This will not be fact based. It'll be opinion based. Okay, this will be opinion based. All right, <laughs> not I a big a, fact guy. I have one question. Hopefully, people made it this far because I think they will enjoy this question. <laughs> if you could change one law in Maine fisheries, what would it be? One law. If you need to pause, think about it, and then yeah. come back, we can certainly no, do I'm, that. I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. Okay. Um, he, for the folks listening, he did not know I was going to ask this question. So he, he has not thought about this at all. So no. you might... Uh, I mean, the laws don't really apply all the time to what I'm doing because, like, I'm usually just fly fishing, right? Sure. I'm always just fly fishing. I haven't picked up a spin rod in years. Sure. I don't even know what to do. So... As long as you're fly fishing, you can really fish anywhere in Maine. Sure, but there are fishing... There's a, there's no, like, spin fishing only places, but... No, but there are more laws than just fly fishing only. I mean, honestly, if you really want to get down to it, I think it's more on the other aspect of um, closing down waters at certain... It's laws that don't exist yet, or laws that we don't have here. Sure, so you want to create one. Yeah, like, yeah. like out west, they do the hood owl restriction. So, like, if we looked at certain river systems in Maine... Um, or ponds or whatever, and they're not in a good fishable state. Like you have an algae bloom on a pond, right? Yep. Like shut it down. 
you have really, really low water when fish are coming in to spawn, which is happening in multiple rivers in Maine recently. Sure. Last, okay. last for example, last fall in the Rangeley region. Yeah, that was horrible. Um, but not even there. There's, even down here, yeah, like all the around yeah. Sebago, yeah, yeah. Um, you have these waters that are just getting really low in the fall. Mm-hmm. So I would like to see some restrictions based on that. And I really, like, I'd leave it up to the biologists, you know. And, and unfortunately, they don't get to make enough calls, it seems like, in the state. That is true. Because I, I think we've spoken to biologists about these issues. I have, yeah. Multiple times. And a lot of people have. But then nothing changes with it. So... I guess a law I'd like to see is let our biologists make more calls on these types of things, right? And on and where do we stock? Where don't we stock? You know what I'm saying? Like these are bigger pictures. It's not like a it's not like an exact law, sure. right? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Let yeah, our yeah. biologists have some more say yeah, in, in what happens. Power, not be as tied to economical decisions, you know, and make more fish first. and political. Yeah, make more fish first laws yeah. rather than people first, fish second laws, which yeah. is basically our entire state. That's how it's set up. And that comes from, uh, if that's a systemic issue. That's, you know, we've had these systems in place long, you know, for 100 years. And it's a systemic issue, which is, you know, I think we're seeing that all over America. I don't want to get political, but there are systemic problems with how we are running our programs yeah. that that doesn't miss fisheries. That also applies to fisheries. We're Fish still, always get the bottom of the totem pole. If these, if these were deer, moose, whatever, yep. these laws would be different. But So I guess my answer to your question in short would be that I wish that we'd allow the people who understand what's best for the fish to make certain rules, laws, restrictions, whatever, around fish. Yep. You know, I think that's a great – that is a fantastic answer. Yep. And we're going to end there, folks. Um, I hope you enjoyed this first episode of our – our mail day, we're calling it our mail day questions. If you have a better name, you have any suggestions, please let us know. Check us out on our Instagram page at the Main Fly Fishing Podcast. Thank you.